Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, it's interesting we're in this text of scripture uh, this morning um, because the, the passage, I, I want you just to imagine for a moment what it was like for Jesus. He's very near the cross. But Jesus has the wide angle lens of the purpose, the redemptive purpose of God and as Jesus has the wide-angled lens on the people of Jerusalem and the temple, he realizes that his coming and his cross is a historical moment for the people of Israel. God is about to destroy, within this next generation, he is about to destroy the temple, he is about to destroy Jerusalem, and it is not going to be easy. And you hear it in the language of Jesus. And it actually happens within the next generation and, and the Romans will surround Jerusalem. And that's why when you hear in this passage of Scripture, Jesus gives warnings, don't run back to the city. That, would, that, that is not a good plan because God's plan is not to make Jerusalem now a safe haven for you. Jerusalem is coming down. You go inside the city, you're not coming out. And if you know anything about our Savior our Savior is not saying this. He has wept over Jerusalem. He continually weeps over Jerusalem as a, as a city that's been her, of people who've been harassed and helpless. And he uses a word in this text of Scripture which is, is not a light word. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 21, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come. Let that word desolation just hang there for you for just a moment. This is a historical, catastrophic moment. God throughout the ages has continually called Jerusalem back to himself, called his people back to themselves, and they've stubbornly said no, no, no. And at this point in history, there is a big shift in how God works out his purposes amongst the nations. It's a huge, devastating shift. I think all of us have had moments in our lives when we've stood in the ruins. Desolation would be a word that would echo into your life, into my life. I have a handful, maybe more, of phone calls that have come to me. And the moment you're on the phone, you realize nothing will be the same now, right? Nothing will be the same. Now, you can get stuck in that little micro moment and expand in anxiety out from there, or you can pull back to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and realize that what looks like devastation is not the end of the story, and it is not the limitation of God. And uh, I've, I have friends in, several friends in Mississippi, and yesterday morning I I get up and I hear tornadoes again. I always wonder why they live in Mississippi. When they, um, but the tornadoes rolled through 
southwest Mississippi, first thing I do is I check, is it anywhere near any of my friends? And I saw an interview with a police constable from a neighboring town who was being interviewed yesterday morning about the people of Rolling Fork, Mississippi. His words were, the community is completely gone. The community is completely gone. And, and you know this. And, and I'm being real careful this morning, <laughs> probably trying to be overly careful with how I say my words this morning, but let me just at least say to you, you know what it's like at times when you just think your whole world just crumbled. You just think it all came down. And, and, and you know in your head, this is, this is not about, this, no, there's no quick fix to this. It's a big shift. There's some alterations going on. And you, you have nothing else to do but to cry out to God for help and for mercy. And I was telling Marianne as I was looking at the text this week, I think it's amazing. So I'm working through things and processing how the God, God makes me prepare sermons that minister to my heart. Uh, these, to be honest, this, these have been the hardest two weeks of my ministry here. And uh, last week, God just knocked me down. <laughs> I, was, I, I, don't, I don't remember missing a Sunday in ministry. I, I might have somewhere 100 years ago. But last Sunday, God just took me out. I tried to get here, and he, I think I had the norovirus or something, but whatever I had, I wasn't coming. I think I was, to be honest, pretty weak because of stress and processing and you know, as the Lord does that, <laughs> humbles you, puts you on your face, you realize, well, where's my hope? And I told Marianne, I said, I, I told her my sermon title. I said, well, I'm going to call it When Your World Crumbles. And she says, that's funny because I just listened to a podcast yesterday called When Your World Crumbles. <laughs> I said, so what did they say? And she said, the main point of the podcast was this. World's been crumbling since the beginning of time. Since Adam and Eve fell, the worlds have been crumbling. Nations have been at war. There's been wars and rumors of wars. There's not a generation down since the fall of Adam and Eve that there hasn't been catastrophe after catastrophe. And as you look at all of that and you hear that story, here's the great news. These stories, these devastating, they're real. Jesus doesn't hide from it. Jesus knows as he stands there, there is hope in the middle of this, and he is that hope. He is that hope. But I think it's helpful for us as a church family and as individual Christians to say, what, what do you do in those moments? And again, I'm really careful exegetically for you scholars and <laughs> thinkers. I realize that Jesus is talking about something far bigger than just you and I and our circumstances of life, but I want to say this, because Jesus did with the, the big issues of calamity amongst humanity and sin and rebellion, he can deal with the smaller issues of what we think are calamity in our lives. What do you do? And I, I'm just going to say this because there will be times for all of us when it comes down. And we're sitting there thinking, I, I don't know how this story can turn out good. I can't see my way through this next season of life. What do you do when your world crumbles? And I just want to give you a few directions today as we prepare to go to communion and realize our great hope is in Jesus Christ. So here's the first um, pastoral advice I want to give you this morning, I believe from this text of Scripture. Uh, what you and I need to do is to get our footing. Get your footing. Right? That's the, the first thing you have to do is 
get, get what's absolutely solid underneath your feet. Go back to the foundation. And here's the foundational truth of the Bible. God is God. He's not sleeping. He's not slumbering. He's not wandering. He hasn't been distracted. He's not indifferent. God is God. He is on the throne. So let me read kind of this devastating passage to you and ask you to listen to what Jesus is saying. And, and, and please, do not listen to Jesus in your voice or in your paradigm or in your narrative. What do you know about Jesus in Jerusalem? He's standing there telling them with, with the heartbreak of the great shepherd what's about to happen to them. He's wept over this. And as he weeps over this, he's still rock solid in what he knows to be true. So it says in, in verse 20, but when Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And I, I just want to stop and say, he's not saying you know that their, their desolation has come near as if it's some random event, but rather the scriptures have been announcing that at some point in time, God will say to the people of Israel in their perpetual idolatry and rebellion, that's it. And there'll be a shift in God's saving purpose. So he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Got that line? To fulfill all that is written? I mean, God has told them over and over again. God has said through multiple prophets that if you do not repent and return to me, return to me, and that you might be healed. Come to me, he says. He repeatedly says it, and they don't. And there's a warning. If you don't, then I will turn from you, Israel. And so those are, these are those days of vengeance worn by virtually all the prophets. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. I just stop and listen to this. I, I hear in Jesus and in Luke's gospel, Jesus' concern for the women. He's just going, this rebellion has consequences to the most vulnerable. Right? Do you hear his heart bleeding? This is not a cold, rabbinic, Pharisaical prophet speaking. This is our shepherd. He says, For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are being are fulfilled. And so you see this is that there was going to be, and it did happen in 70 AD, and it was absolutely brutal. And, there, and Josephus and others have records of what happened in the siege, million people dying or more being described in the most terrible of ways. And so Jesus' prophecy, which he is saying with a broken heart, comes absolutely true. And he's saying at this point in time, the shift is going for the plan and the uh, purpose of God's redemption out to the nations. You're, you're no longer the center at this point in history. David Garland says this, during the war with Rome, 
Many from the countryside actually did enter the city, hoping to find refuge from the invading army inside the walled citadel. Jesus warns that it's no longer a place of refuge. It's dooms, it's sealed. Walls, fortifications, weapons are useless if God's not on their side. Running for the hills is not a cowardly retreat, but a deliberate break with Jerusalem and the false theology of security that views it as sacrosanct and inviolable. Leaving the city and the temple, this is what Garland says, to their fate is the recognition that Jerusalem no longer has a role to play in salvation history. The nation, its temple, and holy city are no longer tied to redemption. Consequently, the disciples are told to, know, to avoid becoming entangled in the nation's fate. The gospel and the kingdom now moves out to the nations. It's a horrific moment but what you and I are to see is that even though it's desolation even though it's devastation it's not outside the plan the purpose the promises of God in his sovereignty the promise of God to Abraham made thousand years 1400 year 2000 years before was that he would be the father of many nations and through his seed the nations would be blessed. Last Sunday, Gabe used Psalm 47, 6 and 7, actually two Sundays ago. (laughs) I wasn't here last Sunday, two Sundays ago, which reads, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of his people gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth, meaning the kingdoms of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted now I'm, I'm very careful with this because the doctrine of God's sovereignty can be used ca- uh, carelessly you take away the heart of Jesus and you take away the heart of God in all of these things the doctrine of the sovereignty of God here is meant to give us comfort because in a world that perpetually rebels against God God is determined to show his mercy He's determined to save, and that's his purpose in all of this. So you and I need to be careful that when people aren't hurting, we just simply say, yeah, but God is on the throne. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't answer a lot of our questions. That doesn't give us a lot of answers to the whys and the hows, and how is it going to work out. It's true as a foundation. It's a, it's a good truth to get our footing on, but the doctrine of God's sovereignty is not so you have an easy explanation for every situation. It's so that you have a solid foundation when it's hard to find explanations. It's, it, it's one of the truest truths that you can have. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And we need to rest in this. And so the Bible reads this way. Paul reads this way. Paul grieves over his fellow Jews in the book of Romans. And there's a section in Romans chapter 9 to 11 where Paul just grieves over their resistance to the gospel. But Paul says in this, even the resistance of the gospel is outside the sovereignty of God because their hardening will result in in the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the same as what Jesus is saying at the end. Until the age of the Gentiles is being fulfilled. 
Aren't you glad God is saving the nations? Well, what a price. What a painful price. But we take comfort in this. They meant it for evil. God means it for good. And so the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is talking about a personal God who sent his son into the world and made him king in order that the nations might be saved. And when we're shaking, when we don't know what to do, when we can't make sense of it, we can always come back to this. Christ is on the throne. God is on the throne. The Westminster Larger Catechism has this answer uh, to question 54 about the Lord sitting at his Jesus sitting at God's right hand, it says, Christ is exalted in sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God with all the fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces and makes intercession for them. At this juncture in history, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, here's the good news. Jesus is on the throne. Not sleeping, not slumbering, not caught off guard, but calculating the comfort and deliverance of his people and carrying it out. David Mathis says, seated in heaven, Jesus is not anxious or uncertain. He's not scurrying feverishly around heaven's throne room making last-minute rescues. He lives. He sits on heaven's throne, secure and utterly stable in perfect heavenly equanimity and composure, interceding for his people with and as God Almighty by his very life and breath. Isn't that good news? doesn't solve every problem for us, but it makes us know that the one who solves every problem has our lives in his hands. So we get our footing. Second thing we have to do is we have to get our orientation. Here's what happens when your world crumbles. You can't see. You can't see how you're going to get through this. You can't see how this is going to get better. You can't see how all things work together. People can say that. That doesn't help. You can't see it. It's dizzying. You get a little clarity, you lose your clarity. I mean, when Faith died, I didn't have a clue what to do. I was pastoring. I was parenting. What am what do you do? I mean, some days you get, you get it together and you can see it. And, you know, if, if, if we could add worship 24-7, every day of the week, every hour, I would have stayed in the presence of the Lord with the people of God just so I could keep clarity. What Jesus says in this passage is not look at the moment, look at the circumstances. He's not trying to get them obsessed, obsessed with kind of paranoia over what's about to happen. He tells them in the middle of this, look to the horizon. Look to the horizon. I, I grew up in a fishing village. I have these memories of being out in the Great Lakes in fishing tugs and in weather where the waves would go up and down. I remember being out with like six or seven large tugboats and we were out there and, and, and when you would go down in, in one of the troughs of a wave you couldn't see anybody, anything. 
And it just looked like the, the whole uh, lake was going to swallow you up. And then you would rise up on the crest and you could see everything. You could see all the other boats, or, or most of them, that are around you. You could see the suns or the clouds even at times. You just come back up like that. And that's the seasickness that comes in a, in a broken world when things don't go the way we want. We lose our orientation. We get spiritual vertigo. You ever had spiritual vertigo? Gabe had vertigo last year, some point in time. He's leading, sitting on a chair, hoping he doesn't fall over, right? You ever see Mike Dawkins when he comes up to pray? We've asked him sometimes to pray outside during an outside worship service, and he said, I don't think I can. Because just walking up there, the vertigo is too much, battles vertigo regular and if you ever see him come up he'll he'll always do this he'll stand because just by moving around the room moves you ever had that vertigo or you just feel like i'm going to go down again i feel like okay i'm stable no i feel like i'm going to go down again listen to what jesus says to his people here says to the people he said there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexities becoming of because of the roaring of the sea and the waves just remember in scripture the the waves being tossed the roaring of the seas is a sign of chaos and conflict and the nations at war that's why in the presence of heaven in the book of revelation what's the sea it's glassy, or it's removed later, but it's glassy sea. It's absolutely calm because in God's presence, there's no spiritual vertigo. The nations are not in turmoil in front of him. They're working out his purpose. He says, verse 26, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in, in a cloud with power and great glory. You got that? Jesus is saying the climactic moment that scriptures have been anticipating in the chaos of the nations is the coming of the Son of Man. And, and he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel, and you read Daniel as, as he hears the prophecies and sees the visions of what's going to happen among the nations. He gets vertical. <laughs> almost. It's just like overwhelming to him. But in the middle of that, he's told of the Son of Man who would come. He said, I saw in the night visions, Daniel seven thirteen. Behold, there what with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And the Son of Man is given the authority, becomes the king over all the nations. Here's the king of kings coming. Jesus says, get your eyes on the horizon, because when this all goes down, it is an anticipation of the coming of the Son of Man. Look at the end of the passage in verse 28. He says, now when these things begin to take place, what should you do? Straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And so I think we're meant to see in this passage of Scripture that Jesus says all of these things must take place, but then I am, I am coming. The Son of Man will come. The King of Kings will come, and He will rule over all the nations. The day you're longing for is not the Roman Empire being cast aside, but all the empires of men being put aside in the kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom under the King who will reign forever. That King's coming. My dear friends, Jesus is coming. I believe in the book of Luke, as Luke is unfolding it, he's talking about Jesus ascending in clouds. 
to heaven and taking his reign and rule and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the gospel going out. I believe it's a double prophecy in the sense that it's also anticipating the day when Christ will come back again and rule over all things for all times. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, as the Gospel of Luke ends and volume 2 of Luke ends, the disciples are gathered around and Jesus ascends. What does he ascend in? In a cloud. And they're all standing, gazing into heaven. And in Acts uh, 1, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, Looking on, he was lifted, and a cloud took, them out of, took him out of sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, of course, messengers of God, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus, who was taking up from you, taken from, up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's gone up in a cloud. He's coming back in a cloud. The book of Revelation says this as a prophecy at the beginning. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who have pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The tribes, the kingdoms of this world are not everlasting kingdoms. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. My dear friends, that cannot be shaken. That will not be changed. He will return and make all things new. That's our promise. It's the only way to get rid of the vertigo. Put your eyes on the horizon. He's coming soon. It's near. Jesus is coming again with power and glory, writes Garland. And when he comes, he'll bring the kingdom to consummation. The time before his kingdom coming will be... Will be um, Frightening and chaotic, unbelievers will be seized with fear and dread, but Jesus encourages believers to be full of hope and optimism. Jesus' coming will be the day of our final liberation of sin from this world, a release from this world with all its trouble and suffering. Aren't you looking forward to that day? We will never have those phone calls, those, those days when we think it's not going to be the same ever again, any of those things. We will not have those moments ever again. He will make all things new. Praise God. Come quickly. Maranatha. King Jesus. This is what sustained believers down through the ages. All through the story of the faithful, those who lived by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that that's how they made it through. Hebrews 11.15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, them, prepared for them a city. My dear friends, there is a day dawning. There is a city being built. There is a, 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 a kingdom that is coming that will be free of all those sorrows, all those pains, all those problems we've ever known. Set your, your eyes on that. This is a call to live with eternity in view. C.S. Lewis makes the point that this will actually help you in this life. It'll help you with the vertigo to keep a heavenly-minded and eternal-minded will keep you in action, keep you engaged when this world looks difficult and hard. Lewis writes, if you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. 
the apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the evangelical, English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were set and were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Friends, we need to be more heavenly minded. Because if you're heavenly minded, you have hope. Not in this world, but for this world. And when you have hope, you can endure. And when you have hope, unshake. and we do have hope, friends, we have unshakable hope in Jesus Christ. A friend of mine, a friend of Marianne and I, she's a writer, last week was talking about, she's had an incredibly difficult life and this last year has been awful. And she uh, told that one of her favorite scenes in Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia series is the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And she talked about Aslan appearing in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, not like a lion, but as a pelican who goes by and, and whispers to Lucy in one of the most difficult moments of her life. He says simply these words, courage, dear heart. You know, friends, we, we don't have to rail hope over people who are struggling. Sometimes we need to be the voice of Jesus, which simply leans over to the person beside you at church on Sunday and says, courage, dear heart. There's a better day coming. There's a king on the throne and there's a kingdom coming and this is just a little while. That whisper of hope changes everything. My dear friends, we got to do it. I, I need it every day. I need to hear Aslan say, courage, dear heart. There is hope. But this is the last thing I want to tell you, and it's of great importance this morning. When the world crumbles or begins to crumble around us, one of the things that we have to do is we have to wake up. We have to wake up the family. That's what Jesus warns them. He, he's giving them a warning of a day that's coming and he's calling them to alertness. He, he gives a little parable of the fig tree and he says, you know, in verse 30, he says, when, when they come out and leave, you know the summer is already here. And so yesterday I heard the sandhill cranes for the first time. When the sandhill cranes make their pterodactyl cry flying over Minnesota, I realize, oh, there might be a spring, Right? The osprey aren't back yet, so I'm not convinced, but there's a possibility of a brighter day. He says, we can tell when these things are going on. We have to lift up our heads, he said, for the kingdom. You know the kingdom is here. Friends, as the world gets chaotic and the nations rage, understand this, we are closer to glory than we've ever been. We are nearing the end of the story. And so he says, you've got to, if you see the signs, be alert. Listen to what he says in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life that that day come upon you like a trap. That your heart gets weighed down. Is your heart weighed down today? Why is your heart weighed down by all the problems of the world? Notice he says dissipation and drunkenness. That literally what he's saying here is it's the fog of a hangover. 
You've been drunk and you've been drinking on the things of the world and you can't make sense out of everything and you have no clear vision of God and His call upon your life. And he says it's it's a warning here. He says, watch yourselves lest that happen. Verse 36, stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before um, the Son of Man. What's our biggest danger? Our biggest danger is to move into a fog to, to lose our spiritual vitality, to, to get in a position where we are asleep at the wheel when the Son of Man is coming. Let me just be real frank. I'm going to preach about this in the next chapter. But when you do that, you become a Judas. And Satan enters in. And texts like this are meant to Remind us that we got to fight the fogginess. So here's a couple of things I just want to say this morning as we move towards communion. Number one, understand the subtlety of spiritual fogginess. You can move into spiritual fogginess not by having major temptations, but by having a long, drawn-out exposure to subtle temptations and worldly cares. Notice he says drunkenness and worldly cares. They're the pleasures of this life and the problems of this life. We all have them. Pleasures and problems and they begin to consume us and we drift away from the Lord. Listen to Lewis as he writes in Screwtape Letters, the senior demon, Screwtape, talking to Wormwood about how to keep a Christian sliding away from God. He says, as this condition of sliding away from God becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that's what habit unfortunately does to pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. Isn't that our culture? At first you've got to keep everybody pleasured, but after a while the pleasures run dry and everybody is just mindlessly trying to amuse themselves to make time go by. He says you no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversations he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here to hell, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought or what I liked. The Christian described the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years. Not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. And he goes on. 
think I have up here, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, post your affectionate uncle, screw tape. My dear friends, wake up. Are you bored? In God's world, with God's mission, are you bored? You can trace that back to the enemy. Are you dull? Are you distant? Wake up. We have to understand spiritual fogginess puts us at great risk. Understand, number two, I just want to say this. Understand in all of this, the Father is fighting for us, not against us. When it all comes down, it's not because God is against us, it's because he's for us. Hebrews says in 12, 5 to 7, and you have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he rep- when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Thank God the walls come down now. It's not hatred. It's not a capricious and harsh God. Thank God our Father fights for our souls when we won't fight for Him. Thirdly, I want to say this, we have to recognize that the family of God's got to fight together to escape the fog of the world. We're not strong. We have to fight together. Take your Bibles and go to Ephesians 5. encourage you to read this before. It's one of many texts. But the Bible says there's a reason you have a family. And the reason the family is we've got to fight for each other. Stay near to the Lord and be awake to the Lord and fight the temptations of sin in the world and <laughs> be like our Father has done this. Listen to how Paul writes. He says, Therefore be imitators, Ephesians 5.1, of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Just going to tell you, you know how many times the New Testament warns us about sexual impropriety? It's because all of us are vulnerable to it. The church is vulnerable to it. The history of modern evangelicalism is covered in it, right? These, these warnings are here not because they're theoretical, but because they're the big battle for our souls. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude jo- joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What are your words saying? What are they directing? What are your jokes doing? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, who is covetous, covers a lot of us that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not become partners with them for at one time you were once darkness but now you're the what the light in the Lord walk as children of the light for as the 
Light is found in all that is good and true and right and true and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Understand this, it's a process. It's analyzing, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? We need to do this collaboratively, helping and supporting one another. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them, for it's it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love that verse. Isn't that glorious? As you come out of darkness into the light, Jesus will shine his light on you. He is for us and not against us. Merciful. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise but unwise, making the best of use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Do you know what we're doing in worship on Sunday morning? we're fighting for your holiness that's why we that's why i'm glad we gather on wednesdays and fight for each other's holiness the world just erodes our alertness my dear friends we're called to help each other fight the fight and finally this is the last thing i want to do as we go to communion i want you to see jesus fighting for you in the next scene next chapter in the gospel of luke we're going to see jesus pleading with his disciples to be alert luke chapter 22 verse 40 it says and when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation when's the last time you prayed that prayer it's right in the lord's prayer lead us not into temptation but deliver us Evil. Jesus says to his disciples at that moment pray that you do not le- uh, enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed and said father if you're willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done he's battling there for you he's battling for your salvation against the enemy who wants to defeat him and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and so an angel strengthens Jesus and when he gets fresh strength what does he do does he say, I'm done, I'm ready to go? Look at the very next verse. He got strength, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. More strength, more prayer. More power, more earnestness. It's the fight of the world. This is all of the world on his shoulders. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here's a question Jesus would ask you today. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spurgeon says, "Do do we not perceive how intense must have been the wrestling through which Jesus passed? And will we not hear its voice to us? You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. That's from Hebrews 12. Behold, the great apostle and high priest of our profession sweat even to blood rather than to yield to the great tempter of your souls. Aren't you glad to see Jesus fighting, pleading, praying? I got good news for you today. 
I think every one of us will look, God help me. But right now at the right hand of the Father, there's one who sweat drops of blood that he would not give up for us and he's still fighting for you right now. He's still fighting for me right now. That's the gospel. The Savior who would do everything to bring us safely home. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer. Let's just pray. Our God and Father, we so love you. We so thank you for these words that you've given to us that when the world is crumbling, you're, you're absolutely solidly on the, on the throne. You're working out your purpose for the salvation of the nations. We know, dear God, that there is a day breaking. Sometimes we can't see how we're going to make it till Tuesday, but we can see in Jesus how we're going to make it home by his grace, by his work, by his forgiveness, by his power, by his faithfulness. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be a church that just helps each other stay awake, not drunken by the pleasures of this world, not distracted by the cares of life, but fixed, our eyes fixed on Jesus. So as we come to take communion, Jesus, do your work. Help us. We need you every hour. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.